along. Welcome to a Tuesday edition of The People's Show. Coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Nick Mazar hanging out with you today. If you want to chime in, 650-650 into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. It's a Tuesday. You know we're going to talk to Yannick Hansen, so let's get to it right off the top. Our guy uh, who joins us here every Tuesday, a uh, longtime NHLer, former Vancouver Canuck, Yannick Hansen, a presentation of Magnuson Auto Group, Metro Ford, Port Coquitlam, and Magnuson Ford in Abbotsford on both sides of the Fraser to serve you. Yannick, how are you? Well, it's hard to complain. Uh, again, it's uh, it's been a while, but it's always a pleasure. Um, I, before we get into some of the hockey stuff, I, I do want to touch on some, some sad news over the weekend. Uh, Vancouver icon, Canuck icon, uh, Gita Ojic passing away at the age of 52. Now, you would have come in, obviously, well after his career, but could you feel the presence of, of, of what he was to the organization and, I'm sure, interactions through the alumni as well? I think I've crossed paths with, with Gino a dozen times, maybe at least, if not even more. Um, always biggest smile on his face, uh, you could you could kind of sense that that when he stepped into the room, he all the attention got drawn to him. You you could see that he was obviously very very beloved by uh, by the organization, by the fans, but by everybody in Vancouver. Um, and again, it's it's sad to see when when someone like that uh, gets taken away from us. Uh, obviously, way too soon. What is it about that role that he played? And you know, so many of those guys off of the ice are just the kindest gentle giants and yet on the ice it's like a flipping personality yeah it, it's without a doubt the toughest role you can you can fill in hockey i mean it's unforgiven uh your job is is literally going out there and then punching in people's head on on a nightly basis especially back then um and vice versa as well you you never know when the next time you're here you're gonna get it is and it doesn't even have to be because the other guy's bigger, tougher, or stronger than you. It could just be pure luck uh, as well. So, I, I mean, the, uh, I I wouldn't want that role in any ways. And and you always look to those guys and say it's it's amazing what they do. And then as soon as they take off their gear, and I I've played with quite a few of of that uh, that caliber of players, that type of players, and like almost all of them, as soon as they take off their gear, they're nice, they're sweet, they're kind, they're helpful, uh, first in uh, in line if, if you need help with anything. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what it is uh, about it, but but it's 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 a common trait. Uh, they a lot of them have that um, kindness, uh, helpful uh, personality, if you will. When you were coming up through the AHL and you're you're in the Canucks Canucks organization, just how, how where were you that he was an example of of what it meant to be a Canuck? Well, it's one of those things. The first time you really notice it is is when he shows up to the in the arena and you're playing and you're like, this is the biggest, uh, this is the loudest the crowd have been um, right for for a while now, and you're like, okay, there, and and then you start to. Uh, to hear some of the stories, some of the older guys telling a little bit, uh, tidbits here and there, cross path with some of the alumni. So you see some highlights and all of these things, and and you start putting together the the, the puzzle as to what these uh, these players have meant to to the organization and so. But it's yeah, it, it comes in, in tidbits uh, here and there, um, all of those things when when you get fed. 
Is there any uh, stories that uh, you can recall that you want to share with us here? <laughs> no, no, again, it, it's before my time. So it, uh, again, it's not really my place to, to tell stories like that. Uh, all right. Talking to Yannick Hansen here. Uh, the, the press conference yesterday with Jim Rutherford, I do want to get to that, but let's start with actually what happened on the ice uh, over the games on the weekend. They they go one and one uh, between Florida and Carolina. And, you know, they've kind of done this thing here recently where they're, they're pushing late in games and yet they don't get the results sometimes. Carolina, they do. But, you know, what do you notice out of that from the team that is you know still pushing late in these games? Is it a sign of they have to improve earlier or is it a sign that they're still out there competing here? Well, obviously, when you find a way to claw yourself back, it's especially Carolina. That's a tough one to swallow two and a half minutes before the time, and all this now now you're down again, and you need to go get a get a goal. So it's um, it's one of those those things where you you can see that they always have the ability to to stay in games, to get back in games because they have these abilities to score goals. Um, the problem tends to become when we always have, we, we have this lead and we need to tie it down now. Uh, we we aren't able able to do that. So again, it's it's a little bit more of the same. They, these guys they can score in bunches, but but again, keeping the puck out of the net that's the that's the challenge. It, it felt against Carolina that they never really broke who they were. Right, they're down two nothing. But they didn't really change their game a lot because so often we talk about that they lose just a bit of composure. They try to do too much, and then they, you know, a, a one nothing game becomes a four nothing game so fast for them. Whereas against Carolina, they just stuck with it, and over the course of time, over sixty minutes, they managed to uh, at least be even, and then obviously win it in the shootout. Yeah, you could see that there was two tired teams as well. Right, uh, Carolina hadn't played the night before. It wasn't the most uh, thrilling game, if you will. Uh, shot clock was very low. Um, not too, too many great A chances up until the end. And obviously the overtime, it was yeah. back and forth. Um, so so you could see it was a different type of game. Carolina seemed very, uh, very content with playing a uh, slow pace, just kind of uh, squeak out uh, two points here and then let's get out of here. And obviously that didn't work out for them. Um, but, but it's one of those where you have to look at the schedule as well. Uh, last game of the road trip, uh, back to back, all these things, and and take everything with a with a little bit of a grain of salt here, because again, it's um, every game has their their challenges and their uh, their things you kind of have to overcome. And and late in the road trip, back to back, you got to be very careful not reading into too too much as to what happens, other than than the result you're looking for. The, the other person I want to talk about, too, here is, is Andre Kuzmenko. Now, he has two points in the last game, and it looks like even from the wing on a different line, was able to drive it. And, you know, we're getting to this conversation of, of where we go uh, in the offseason with Andre Kuzmenko. Is, is this a decision that you want to see them commit to Kuzmenko? Or given where the, they are in the larger you know, context of, of what their team build is, should they try to be moving off of him? Uh, I think they need a clear-cut direction before um, the deadline here. Obviously, if if you let him play past that and you haven't re-signed him, uh, he he becomes a UFA and and he holds all the cards. Uh, that that's not a good situation either. Um, so either you you sign him to a number you're you're comfortable with, uh, a year you you're happy with before the deadline, or I think you're you're forced to move him again because he has had. A significant year this year. He has played very well. He's proven that he can play in different situation. Uh, doesn't get down. Uh, can drive possession a little bit himself as well. So it's definitely a player you do not want to let go for nothing. 
but, but also a player I'd be hesitant as to t sign for too much for too long because of the sample size. Um, and again, it, it's unfortunate because it's exactly the type of player you were hoping for that could step in and, and provide something um, that you weren't expecting. Um, and again, him coming off the, the left wing, kind of, if you will, uh, having played in Europe last year, you, you didn't give up anything to for him. You're paying him minimal, um, but but really you, you, you aren't getting anything for, for all of that he's done for you. Uh, you're still digging around in the bottom of the basement, so it's... Uh, Again, it's very positive in his play, the way he's done, the way he's performed, and all of that. But uh, again, it's it's kind of for nothing if if you end up letting him go or um, you end up turning into to a bad contract, if you will. Well, obviously, today we're talking about the contract, but the the, the conversation the last couple of games or, or over the weekend was why wasn't he out on the ice late in the game? Now he does against Carolina, produces the assist to help uh, tie the game. But in the previous two games, late in the game, Audrey Kuzmiko wasn't out there. And it was Lane Peterson and it was uh, Curtis Lazar who had that chance against uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning. He's such a skilled player, but, you know, he wasn't put out in those spots. When that doesn't happen, you know, we're, 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 so much of the focus was put towards Bruce Boudreaux. Do players recognize, like, why isn't the guy who's got, you know, 19 assists on the year and, and, and scoring and one of our best scorers, why is it... Why isn't the coach trusting him right now in, in this spot? It could be coach's feel uh, that they, they feel like this guy deserves it. He's had a good game. Uh, he needs something. Uh, again, if, if you're playing uh, six on five and you have more than a minute and 20 seconds, you're going to need 12 players. So, so he might have been second round around here uh, coming up on, on the next rotation. We, we don't know that either. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. I tend not to read too much into it. Uh, who, who, who's on the ice in these situations? Has he just had a shift? Is he tired? Uh, whatever it might be. Obviously, if, if you let somebody like Quinn Hughes not play the last four minutes of a game where you're down one nothing, you can lean a little bit more into it. But, but something like this is is not it. I mean, he, he's out there the next game uh, at the end of the game. And again, they produce a goal. They almost produced a goal against Tampa as well. So it's not like they were completely shut down in any ways it's just one of those things you have 18 players on your bench and it won't be the same players every single time 100 of the time different way to kind of ask the question is hey has he got to a point where he earns his contract and in what we're talking about the end of the game scenarios here and we're talking with the coach you know he's stuck in this tough position has he earned a, a potential contract whether obviously there's been so many reporting of well, what's going to happen next year but like, has bruce done a good job here for you this season Bruce, no, because he's at fault too. I, I mean, it's it's tough to to put it all squarely on on one person or uh, management or or players. It, it's obviously a combination. And again, this team is playing like it was under Green. Um, yeah, Bruce, when he came in last year, they they were a different team and not played at, but they still like they were still holes. Um, and all of those things. So, uh, again, it's obviously not their guy. They don't want him. Uh, it seems now that the, the news are getting leaked out that uh, they're already preparing whoever's coming in next, which is not a bad, not a good situation either. You want this thing getting done uh, rather quickly and, and then so so people don't have to walk around the halls and knowing your, your, your days are, are counted or whatever you might say. Um but again, when when you have a season like this, um, there there's a lot of people that are at, at fault, and then it is a 
it is a success-driven business. Uh, and if you don't have success, even if you had success the year before, um, changes will be made. Uh, and Bruce are, are not protected from that in any way just because of what he came in and did for the last um, 40, 50 games last year. Um, the team that, that we saw there is not the team we're, we're seeing this year. Um, so, so again, everybody uh, everybody's going to get held accountable. The coaching is obviously easy because it's one guy in and out. It doesn't affect the cap. Well, it doesn't really affect anything. And again, going from Greener to Bruce, you saw the impact. So again, they're hoping going from Bruce to whoever it might be that they're going to get the same kind of impact. Um, again, once you start making uh, making changes on the lineup, that that's when you you can't have any any mulligans, if you will. Um, and again, uh, management there. Uh, they get a couple of uh, of changes of coaches as well before it's it's their time to uh, to look for new jobs. Is because you know we we talked last week and, and we kind of pitched it to you. It's like, what do you do with Bruce? Do you make a decision? And and, and you were saying, hey, just like ride this out. It's okay. But now like all these stories coming out of the next coach has been picked already, and they're waiting for him to come in, and it's 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 uncomfortable. But from a player's point of view, or or even from Bruce's point of view, like what do you do in this scenario? Yeah, it's terrible uh, to be on there is what three months left of their season, uh, maybe a little bit more. Um, I, I would have preferred them. Uh, obviously, Jim's got to make his phone calls. Uh, problem is when it gets leaked like this, uh, media being what, what they are. Um, but but it's another distraction. Uh, it's another thing you're talking about. Now you're talking about, okay, that this isn't handled properly. Uh, we could have done this better. It's not nice to bruise. All of these things. Uh, again, you're letting the guy go. You want to fire him or whatever it might be. Either you you do it or or you wait. Um, this thing where you're you're getting dragged through and uh, every single game um, you you're getting these questions. It's it's not a good situation either. Um, that that's where you gotta have some sort of professionalism here uh, and hopefully deal with. Because it is people and it is person and, and it should be handled in a in a proper fashion. Um, so again, you, you'd like it to be handled a little more professionally. If they make a change, and let's say someone like Rick Tockett, that's been the, the popular name, comes in. How many games did you feel like under a new coach, it, it took you to figure out what that coach wanted to do? Um, it's nice to have. Well, I didn't get. Uh, I didn't have to get a new coach uh, during the season, so so that's a tough one. But okay, but even starting the season, like how far into the season did you feel like you understood like what the plan was as far as like the the the, the tactics in the game? Yeah, that's where the training camp really comes in because you have all the time for all these video meetings and and getting everything sewn down. You have your preseason games. Um, obviously, you got to get a feel for the guy on the bench in pressure situation when, when things are moving fast and stuff like that. And, but, but in terms of what it is expecting of a co, it doesn't, it doesn't take that long. It's, I'd say it's harder with, uh, with teammates and then new players, line mates, uh, getting their tendency down because it's such, uh, such a big impact on the ice, what happens. And, and again, communication, these things where coaching, a lot of their stuff is done beforehand, uh, pre-scouts, uh, uh, layup for games and all these things, so you, so you kind of know once you step on the ice what's uh, what's expected of you and and what your role and then what to do in certain situations. So that stuff should get sorted out uh, fairly quickly. Obviously, new coach going to bring in new systems, and that is where you're gonna you're gonna 
take care of that during training camp and, and preseason so you have it nailed down for when regular season comes. Yeah, it's puzzling to me at least, like why push the button on the coach now, or at least the, the, the idea of the next guy so soon. And, you know, Jim Rutherford yesterday was still very uh, honest and open with media. And, you know, he, he gave Bruce the public vote of confidence, and he's our coach for right now. Uh, you know, what did you make of, overall of what uh, Jim Rutherford did yesterday? Yeah, on the term of, of Bruce, I mean, he has to do that. He's employed by him. He's his coach. You can't go out and say, no, Bruce is getting fired in three weeks, uh, if that's the case, if if that's what we're waiting for. Um, and again, a little bit of uh, uh, publication damage control, maybe, if you will, because it did get leaked all of a sudden. Was it doing hockey night in Canada? And, and all of a sudden, oh, Vancouver has their new coach, and then you know all the questions are going to get fired uh, in the dressing room after the games to players. Bruce is going to get asked. Uh, so, so again, a little bit of damage control on, on that account. Um, obviously, he owned up to uh, to his mistakes too in anticipating as to what this team could do and where they were. Um, I don't know how he missed it, uh, Rutherford, in that sense. I mean, um we looked at the team in the summer, and you can see, you know, this defense is not good enough. Uh, and I think just about everybody could see that. So I don't know what they saw um, or they were hoping for, maybe, that, that something else were going to happen. Obviously, it didn't. Uh, but but now you can hear that it, it's a different approach that are hopefully coming at some point. And it's not mentioned in the small tweaks a little bit here and there. No, we, we need to do uh, so, some major things. Um and they're still believing that they can turn it around in a fairly short order. Uh, and to some extent, they're probably right about that. If you can take care of, of these contracts, which have been the issue for uh, quite a while now. So I don't know how all of a sudden they're going to be able to do that. Um, again, there's a reason they have the job and, and we don't. So we'll just have to wait and see. Just overall, he was very honest yesterday and transparent. And it, it kind of unveiled uh, the, the the layer that we don't often see with, with, with GMs trying to be that open. But it's it's constantly managing not just the media, but, you know, players' expectations and players' roles and how they feel about it. And if you're a player and you you hear what Jim Rutherford says, A, are you even paying attention to what the GM says? But B, you know, if, you, if you're a player, like, what are you thinking after yesterday? Well, you have to uh, because, he like, that's kind of the direction. Uh, and again... If he comes out and says major change needs to happen, well, well, I'd hope major change happened because otherwise would he say it? And if you're sitting in that dressing room, you're wondering, oh, is that me? Uh, that that that's that major change that has to happen one way or another. And the players know when he's mentioning bad contracts, they know know who they are too. So you are very well aware of it. Um, you you just kind of uh, you're waiting for when that hammer drops and then then see. Uh, how extensive the the changes are gonna be and, and how many it's gonna affect that, that that's the only thing you can do at, at this point there's almost nothing that can transpire on the ice that that'll change that sort of something miraculously obviously happening to some players and their performance um you just kind of you you're waiting for 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 that first uh for that first pen to drop did you like the way he talked about Horvat yesterday um essentially saying, like, we've given our best shot, we're not going to pay him for his career year. It was essentially the tone in, in, in what he said. Yeah, the problem is they did that to JT last year, and it's the wrong guy, obviously, you should have done the other way around. Um, so so it's, it's, it's true, you, you can't, like, 
I've been kind of on, on in that boat as well. Like you can't pay uh, for what he's done this year um, because you're going to end up with, with a bloated contract, uh, I think. Uh, and again, uh, cap wise, you, you need to, you need to be wiser. Um, had you been right at the cusp of, of winning a cup, being the best team, I'd say, yeah, push for it and then pay him a little bit more if that makes a difference. Um, but with, with the team being where it is, um, it's probably not wise to, to do. Um, again, uh, these were decisions that should have been done uh, a, a year ago, started maybe even more uh, and started looking at this in a in a bigger picture and, and you would have probably been in a little better position than you are now. Uh, Yannick, we appreciate it as always and uh, we'll talk next week. Sounds good. Take care. Yannick Hansen as he joins us every Tuesday here on The People Show. Fascinating conversation as always. Uh, presentation of Magnuson Auto Group, Metro Ford, Port Coquitlam, in Abbotsford on both sides of the Fraser to serve you. And it's a difficult spot right now, obviously, for the Vancouver Canucks and Jim Rutherford. Obviously, we get to see what they're going to do with the coaching staff. But, you know, I just kind of rewatching that press conference last night. And I mean, we were talking yesterday and... They've outlined their plan. That's one thing. But I couldn't help in a, in a rewatch because, you know, in the moment you're you're taking it all, you're scribbling quotes and trying to think of what to do the show. But rewatching it, I couldn't help to take in a certain level of, boy, are they confident. And it, it's in almost direct contrast to what we saw, obviously, for the previous eight years as well. He's a big winner yesterday because of the way he delivered that press conference. There's confidence that they can be able to pull this off. That's the thing. Like a lot of times when we heard a previous regime talk about, it's like, hey, these are the plans. And, and the actions didn't always line up with the plans. Like how many times Jim Banning talk about, hey, we love draft picks. And then draft picks would go out the door. You know, that's the thing I look at yesterday. And it's it's part of it is because it's fresh eyes and there isn't a totality of transactions where you can look at it and say, well, this is in direct conflict with what you said here. Given the context of what happened yesterday and as we continue to evolve into the you know, March 3rd and the next wave of transactions. Like, you go through the series in in key moments so far, Jim Rutherford stood in the firing line and been very confident about what they can do. You know, as soon as he stepped into the job, you know, the COVID thing, and, and there he was meeting with the media, detailing the outline of what they have to do to come back, and, you know, there's a moment of praise. The trade deadline, they held firm on the Tyler Mott thing. There's another moment. Coming into the, the end of season, you know, the whole Bruce situation. They chose to take it on head-on. And obviously this season, you create the bed that you sleep in. But they were willing to take that moment head-on and with a lot of confidence. And yesterday, re-watching that, I couldn't help but think, like, that's a confident individual. And that's what you want. Someone who's, you know, got steel in the feet and were ready to stand in there take those shots of, of not just facing the media, but confidence in their plan. Now, here's the thing. We get to judge them on the execution of that plan. They have to they have to succeed in the execution of this plan. But that was my big takeaway on a kind of a rewatch of yesterday's press conference. Steely nerves from Jim Rutherford. We'll get into a lot more here on The People Show. Mark Schofield will join us on the other side, setting up uh, not just divisional round, but we'll talk about what happened in the wild card round. And Tom Brady... There's no physical decline, but is Tom Brady afraid to take a hit? Uh, let's get into it with Mark Schofield. Coming up in just a couple of minutes here, home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Take that, take that, take that.
show. I'm Vic Nazar coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Fun weekend of football wrapping up last night. Tom Brady, I'm not saying he's washed, but boy, did it look like and heads it look like for a few weeks now. He doesn't want to take hits. That's a big problem. We'll get into it with Mark Schofield here right now as he joins us from SB Nation, uh, NFL writer, and we love talking quarterbacks with him, at Mark Schofield on Twitter. We'll get get to the Tom Brady stuff, but it was a great weekend of football, Mark. And and let's start with San Francisco and Seattle, kind of work our way through wildcard weekend. I thought good performance from both guys. I know there was some trepidation of how much Kyle Shanahan does for Brock Purdy, but still a tough environment. Mr. Irrelevant comes through with the win. And the stats look great, gets the big W. And I thought Geno Smith also looked fantastic. What did you make of that opening game of the wild card weekend? You know, I think so too. Um, you know, Kyle Shanahan does so much to sort of stress, dissect, carve up, break down, what, whatever phrase you want to use, a defense. I mean, you know, two of my favorite plays from that, that game were, you know, the toss sweep they had early in the game to Debo, and then they showed that exact same look to Seattle. But they threw a backside slant to Christian McCaffrey, who was on both plays aligned as a single receiver to the right side. And they're just, you know, two plays, quick little snapshot. There's obviously a lot more that Kyle Shanahan does, but they're just a great glimpse of how well he constructs that offense. And yes, you know, as we've talked about, the job that Shanahan does at putting, you know, the offensive players he has, the talent he has at his disposal in different positions to stress defenses. It makes the quarterback's job a little bit easier. But Purdy, for his part, played very well. You know, I think he, like you said, Beck, he missed some throws early. Some throws were high early. You think maybe the, the nerves are getting to him, but he sort of settled into that game, you know, made some impressive throws. There were some throws that, even though they were completions, he missed that wheel route along the left side line that's gotten a lot of buzz on social media. He maybe left that a little bit inside, and the defender took a bad angle on it. But still... I thought for his first playoff game, first playoff start, played really well. I thought Gino played well, too. Um, you know, and I, I remain, you know, certainly of the mind that Gino should be the starter going into next year. And I know that there's already been that discussion. He talked after the game about, you know, how, you know, he wanted to be in Seattle. And, you know, they gave him a chance and he wants to sort of reward that. And so I think he will be, you know, the starter going into the season. How much longer is he the starter? What's a potential Geno extension look like that remains to be seen but I think he played well I think as we've talked about dating back to I think even October you know Seattle is in a very good position right now with where they are in terms of draft capital thanks to the Russell Wilson trade the, the areas and positions they can address in this draft I mean we're talking about an organization right now that you know they have the fifth overall pick in the draft they're going to have five picks in the first three rounds including four in the first 53 picks that that's a lot of draft capital to make a lot of additions. So I think Seattle is in a, a very good position as well. You know, you wonder maybe sometime early day three, do they take a quarterback? Late day two, I've heard. Perhaps say Hendon Hooker's name um, linked to Seattle a little bit. So I think both quarterbacks played pretty well, and I think both teams should be somewhat excited about the QB position going forward. Uh, okay, you mentioned the Jaguars game. Why did the second half work so well for Trevor Lawrence? Because I, I don't think the first half was just nerves it just looked like they were getting beat and yet the second half was so phenomenal yeah I mean when you look at it wasn't like they wildly changed things I mean they you 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 sort of look back at that game you study that game and 
you know, they were running some of the same things. They were doing some of the th same things conceptually. It wasn't like they decided to scrap their game plan and go wildly off script. I think part of it was that touchdown before halftime. It sort of calmed them down, settled them in. And I think it, it, there, there's a leadership component from Doug Peterson. You know, I know Trevor Lawrence in recent days talked about how he stayed in, you know, starting back in training camp. You know, they talked about adversity and overcoming adversity. And if mistakes happen, okay, fine, you move on, you learn from them. And I think there was an element of that at play as well. I think we can't overlook Jacksonville's defense and the role that that Jacksonville defense played in that comeback and played in their sort of second half of the season comeback because you get up to a 27-0, 27-7 lead, you think we're on the road, we're going we're gonna, to you know, shrink this game, we're going to run the football, we're going to work some clock. Jacksonville kept stopping the run. The Chargers could not run the ball. And they were forced to become, even with that lead, a one-dimensional team, which allowed them to extend the game, Jacksonville to extend the game. And I think the, the Jaguars' defense did a fantastic job. Now, it's gonna, that job's going to get much tougher this week. You know, you have to go to Kansas City. You have to play Patrick Mahomes. But I think that Jacksonville defense deserves a ton of credit for the way the Jaguars were able to come back in that game. I do want to get into the, the, the Chargers side, but we'll do that later. I, like, they made coaching changes today. Mike Lombardi is out. And so once they hire someone, we'll, we'll talk about what, you know, Justin Herbert, what ceilings he can reach. But we're going to the Dolphins-Bills. I was talking yesterday, and it felt like the Dolphins took, like, a, a college basketball approach of, let's just be the giant killer and play as high variance as possible. We'll send the house as much as we can. And if we get a couple of turnovers, we get a couple of turnovers. And we'll, we'll reduce Josh Allen to... 50-50 balls rather than him just picking us apart. It, it felt like a sound strategy, and they made it difficult. They still look up at the board, and it's 34 points against, but did they unlock something that other teams can pick up and maybe pick up on and maybe try to execute with a better level of consistent execution given the standard of who they are? Yeah, this has kind of been their game plan against Josh Allen for, you know, dating back to last season and even earlier than that. You know, I wrote about that, you know, back before their meeting earlier this year, their first meeting where, you know, Josh Boyer, even under Brian Flores, Brian Flores, when he was in Miami, they had this idea of we're going to go zero pressure. We're going to bring the house. We're going to force you to execute under duress at a high level. And they've had some success doing that against Josh Allen over the times that these teams have met over the past couple of years. You know, they forced some throwaways. They forced some incompletions, some turnovers, sacks and the like. By doing that, the problem is, you know, there's going to be that one moment where you don't get home. There's going to be that one play where, you know, that old tagline, uh, you know, if you go zero blitz and you don't get home, the other team's band's going to play. And you you saw that. They go zero blitz. They can't get home. He's able to hit the deep shot. You know, so I think can other teams, will other teams try that? Yes. I think there's been this sort of tension, this push and pull of how do you defend Allen how do you offend Mahomes? Do you sit back? Do you place off covers? Or you just decide, look, you know what? Forget giving them the easy throws. Forget forcing them to be patient. Let's sort of take the fight to them and go with these zero blitz pressure schemes. I think the right approach is to find some sort of balance between the two. Go pressure at times. Play soft at other times. Force them to continually try to figure out what you're going to do. And, and Miami did some of that. I think if there's a, a game plan, a scheme to sort of emulate it, Building off of that, showing pressure and drop-ins, showing softer looks and sending the house after them, trying to sort of compress that decision-making window for Allen. He's an incredible talent. 
and there's going to be plays where he's just going to do something where you're like, well, what can we do, right? You know, we, we sent eight after him. We had everybody covered, and he still made a play. You tip your hat, you move on to the next snap. But I think that's the thing to watch starting this weekend with the Bengals. You know, do they do some of that where they really try to confuse him between pressure versus non-pressure, constrict that decision-making window, and really hope that, okay, maybe he gets one or two big ones against us, but we'll have done enough on the offensive side of the ball where it won't be as much of a problem. In, in creating that much pressure, how do they also slow him down to only allow four rushes? Because that's the value in, in Josh Allen. Is he's going to create with his legs, too. Uh, it, it was only four four attempts on the ground. Yeah, I mean, you have to have discipline up front in your rush lanes, you know, because all of these pressure packages, you design them, you structure them. So you've got guys that will contain. You've got potentially a spy or at least somebody that's clouding the interior of the pocket whose job maybe isn't to get home per se, but it's to prevent him from stepping up and breaking through. And then, you know, if you go zero blitz and you've got three vertical routes, the guys at the secondary are 25, 30, 35 yards downfield. There's a lot of grass or turf for Josh Allen to exploit with his legs. And so it starts with sort of discipline up front and trying to pair, say, a pressure scheme with a muddied pocket to keep him there. But that's the difficulty of Josh Allen is that, you know, for so much of what he can do with his arm, he's just as dangerous with his legs. And you see it every week, teams that try to whiteboard a scenario, a game plan, a way to slow him down. You have to account for what he can do as his le- with his legs as well. And, you know, when you start doing that, when you start, you know, leaving def- a defender into spy, that's one less, pr- you know, defender that isn't going after him. And that's one more little window where he can sort of escape or create or even just step up in the pocket. And so it's, again, it's a, it's a very tough task in front of the Bengals this week, you know, and potentially other teams down the road if Buffalo is to win, of how do you sort of defend the, the myriad ways he can stress you as a quarterback. Uh, now, Daniel Jones was able to do that quite effectively. We're talking to Mark Schofield here, as we do every Tuesday on the People's Show. Uh, 41 plays uh, where Daniel Jones was doing something positive. 24 completions, 17 carries. Uh, is this just the recipe now? They, they they shortened the game with the quarterback being able to run, a win on third down, and crushing the red zone as they've done all season. I certainly think that's part of it for New York. I mean, this was a very good performance from Daniel Jones. One of the better performances we saw this week. And, you know, certainly what he can do with his legs, 120 rushing attempts during the regular season with a good chunk of those coming on designed runs uh, where he was one of the most efficient Running, uh, quarterbacks, running quarterbacks in the league this year. I think if you look at, you now I wrote about it at the end of last week, if you, Sports Info Solutions charts it out by designed runs and, you know, his EPA per Russian attempt on designed runs was, I think, if it wasn't number one overall as a QB, it was second only to Lamar. Um, that's how efficient and effective he's been on designed runs. You incorporate some of the boot action, the play action stuff that they do as well. Also, again, very effective. And what we saw against Minnesota was his ability to beat you when you blitz. You know, they blitzed him, I think. He had 10 passing attempts when he was blitzed. He completed seven of those for 81 yards and a touchdown. Last year, he was 20th in the NFL in pro football focuses, adjusted completion percentage when blitzed. That's, you know, a charted method that they do when they strip out throwaways and drops and things like that, which was, again, 20th in the NFL. He was first in the NFL pick this year when blitzed in adjusted completion percentage. That's been a big part of his development this year. And certainly what Brian Dable, what Mike Kafka have done, you know, have helped, given him some some easy reads and throws to replace the blitz with the ball. 
but his ability when blitzed this year stood out Sunday against the Giants. It stood out all season long, and it's been a big part of his growth and development. Kirk Cousins. Now, it was actually a fantastic game for Kirk, but you you and I have talked so much about, you know, Kirk can be a coach's dream because you draw, draw it up on the whiteboard. He knows exactly what he has to do. But I, and I was talking yesterday, it felt like that last play, fourth and eight, it, it was the right thing to do in a vacuum. And it's all well and good to, to dump it off and hit the guy because the pressure's coming and everything. But was it the right play to do in the context of what the game was happening and unfolding in front of you? And, you know, he had a fantastic game, but it felt like it's another performance where Viking fans can say he's good enough, but preventing us from being great. Yeah, and it gets us back to, you know, whatever favorite quarterback and analogy you like to use. You know, I've heard, you know, Dan Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks talk about tractor versus trailer, right? Are, are you the trailer that's being pulled by the team or are you the tractor pulling the team? I've used, you know, Baker versus Chef, right? Right. Where you've got chefs who are, you know, quarterbacks that kind of pan outside the lines that, you know, a recipe might call for half a teaspoon of garlic and you put in a whole teaspoon or something because you can sort of play around with things a little bit. But then you've got bakers where you have to be precise and you have to go step by step. And I can, I, I, I've always felt that that's where Kirk Cousins falls on that sort of spectrum. You know, there are moments when he shows you a little bit more, but on that fourth down play, like in a vacuum, yeah, that might have been the right read. But in that moment, in the context of fourth and eight with your season on the line, Maybe you have to do something a little bit different. Maybe you have to say, throw the step-by-step out the window and say, I've got potentially a singled-up shot player on the left side to Adam Thielen that maybe he has a step, you take that. Or you know, you've got Osborne on that breaking that route in breaker, breaking over the middle. Maybe that's the route you have to throw. You know, the playbook, the scheme, the situation in terms of the coverages might bring your eyes to Hawkinson in the flat, but on fourth and eight. You might have to push the envelope a little bit. And that's always been sort of the tension, you know, with Kirk Cousins and where he is as a quarterback. And it gets us back to the overall view of him, which is he's a very good, at times, elite quarterback, but you need a lot of things to be going right around him. And when you need him to do something a little bit differently or go a little bit off script, that's where you see the sort of breakdowns that we saw in that fourth and eight play. Uh, the last one I want to touch on is Tom Brady. Uh, now, we've talked about, hey, is there any physical decline with Tom Brady? And he's, you know, juking in the backfield and throwing shovel passes yesterday. And, and he'd say, hey, this this guy looks like a spry 45-year-old, and he can still check it downfield. So, you know, there's no actual physical decline. But it was hard not to look at that red zone interception, the end zone interception, to say, is this a guy that wants to take hits at 45 years old? And it's fine to say no physical decline. That's not a thing. But it does if you can't do that part with enough frequency i worry if it matters that you're not physically declining yeah and you almost want to you could almost make the case that that in and of itself is a physical decline right you know because getting hit it's part of the job you know there are moments when you know you're going to have to stand in there and know that the hit the big shot is coming and you got to sort of just take it um to make a throw to make a play because that's what the context, the moment, the situation, the route design calls for. Um, you know, and if you would have asked me, say, yesterday afternoon before that game, is Brady coming back? I would have said, I mean, I wrote it over at SB Nation. Yeah, 100%. Win or lose, he's coming back. Now I'm not so sure. You know, I've, I've gone from maybe 99 to like 75 or something because you saw, not just in that game, but throughout the season, really, there was 
uh, reluctance to stand in there and take a big hit. You know, and that that's something that started to creep into his game over and over. And let's face it, getting hit isn't fun. You know, it's not something you enjoy as a quarterback, but it is sort of part of the gig. And if he's going through this balancing process of, you know, I'm a 45-year-old man, like uh, one big shot could be the end of it, you know, could be really time to hand it up. I, I want to avoid that. And if that's starting to hold you back and prevent you from staying in the pocket to make a throw or stepping into a throw or getting enough on a ball to the boundary, that it starts holding the offense back. And so, you know, I, I still think ultimately he plays another season, whether that's in Tampa Bay or somewhere else remains to be seen. But, you know, that performance last night and some of the times that he showed that similar you know, reluctance to step into a throw or to hand in the pocket when pressure started to get there makes you think that maybe that was the last time we saw him in an NFL uniform. And, you know, at some level it would be a, a shame that that's the way it ends. I, You know, he could still play. Like you said, there's no sort of physical decline in terms of, you know, velocity on throws because he can still dial it up when he needs to. A pocket movement and things like that, the little pitch play that he had last night as well, he can still give you that in moments and flashes. But... The overall willingness to stand in there and to do the things that made him great to begin with, that seems to have perhaps dipped a bit. And that has me a little bit wary of saying with any sort of definitive nature that, yeah, he's absolutely coming back. I'm not so sure. I was sure 24 hours ago. I'm not as sure right now. Uh, what was the uh, throw of Wild Card Weekend for you? Daniel Jones. That throw where he's sliding left to Hodges along the left side. I mean, there were a number of impressive throws this week. I mean... You know, even in the sort of, you know, pressure situations that Josh Allen had, you know, the deep shots against cover zero, some that even were dropped. I thought he made some impressive throws. Uh, Lawrence had a couple during that comeback. But that Jones throw, you know, that's something that we didn't see too often from him over the first couple of years of his of his NFL career. But it shows you the confidence that he's playing with. You know, make any time a quarterback makes a throw moving to his left with that kind of velocity, with the sort of mechanics in the upper body and through the hips that you need to get that kind of velocity on a throw. It's impressive to me. So for me, it was it was Daniel Jones. Who's got the toughest matchup this week? Oh man, that's that's a tough question. I I, I do wonder about Burrow. Um, we've seen before okay. his ability to play behind you know an offensive line that struggled to protect him and his his toughness. Now, I do wonder about going up against that Buffalo defense, Leslie Flazier, obviously Sean McDermott, a defensive-minded head coach. I think that's going to be a tough matchup for him. Dak's going to have his hands full. I mean, that is a, a 49ers defense that can get after you. They have talent at all three levels. Fred Warner is one of the best linebackers in the NFL. Charles Omeda, who, you know, when the Niners traded for him last year, I wrote that this could be a huge acquisition for them. You know, they're going to kick him inside in some sub-packages. He had two sacks this weekend of Geno Smith. Obviously, had the strip sack that was critical in that game when it looked like, you know, Seattle was getting a little bit of momentum there. You know, that was his first multi-sack game of his NFL career, I believe. You know, so that San Francisco defense is going to pose a challenge for Dak as well. Um, but those are the two guys that I think, you know, Burrow and Dak, they're obviously very good elite quarterbacks, but they face some tough ta challenges in, in the days ahead to figure out what they're going to do against those defenses. Is, is Dak the type of quarterback that, that you've mentioned before, that he can be such a computer back there that against this defense, like that's kind of what you're going to need to open up opportunities? Because he was fantastic last night after the opening drive. 
Yeah, he was phenomenal last night, and it was such a great performance to see because he, Dak is one of those quarterbacks that, you know, there's a sort of meme narrative going around on football Twitter right now that he's the perfect test of, you know, do you know ball or not? Uh, because a lot of people sort of look at Dak and they say, oh, the turnovers and things like that. But like I said, like like I've talked about before, Bick, so much of what he does pre-snap, you know, that gets him in a position once he gets the ball in his hand, whether it's an under center situation or a shotgun situation, where he knows exactly where his eyes need to be because of everything that he's done, the pre-snap phase. That's going to be huge this week. You know, started with, okay, what's this defensive front look like? Where's 97? Where's Bosa? Where is he? Where's Omenahu? You know, where do they, where do they have Fred Warner? I mean, there's so much that, you know, Demeco Ryans does conceptually, you know, the, the looks that they give you up front, the stuff they do in the secondary, that, you know, it's going to be a big test for him. Now, he's got the, the, the ability to answer that, absolutely. But that's going to be, you know, that game, Dallas-San Francisco, I think gives us two of the more fascinating schematic matchups on both sides of the ball, right? Because you've got Kellen Moore versus Ryans and what that Dallas offense will do against this defense. But then you flip the coin, Kyle Shanahan versus Dan Quinn. You know, how does how do those matchups play out when the 49ers have the football? I mean, as far as matchups and game planning and the X's and O's part of it, that Niners-Dallas game is going to be fascinating. Hey, Mark, we appreciate it as always. Uh, it's going to be another fantastic weekend of games, and we are on our way to the Super Bowl. Thank you so much, my friend. Enjoy it. Have a great afternoon. Enjoy the games this weekend. That's Mark Schofield here on The People's Show. Big shout out to him. Fantastic breakdown of what we saw and what we will see coming up this weekend for the divisional round in the NFL playoffs. But let's get to The People's Picks. Brought to you by Play Now Sports. Get a $5 free bet when you make a $25 same-game parlay wager on NFL games. Conditions apply. Must be 19 plus. We'll work our way through all the games throughout the course of the week, but we'll start with Kansas City and Jacksonville. I gotta admit, uh, congrats to the to the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars for that win. And this one's gonna be much tougher. You're not gonna have a one-dimensional offense like Mark was just talking about with the LA Chargers. They can struggle at times. This one is a different animal. It can turn into one-dimensional, but that one dimension is Patrick. Mahomes and Andy Reid just always has answers. Andy Reid coming off a bye as well, as we know how historically great he can be in that spot. And so I'm looking at uh, touchdown scorers in this spot between the Chiefs and the Jaguars. Pick your poison, basically, is is where I'm going with this. As far as any time touchdown scorers, if they are wearing a red jersey, I'm going to look at Isaiah Pacheco at 1.87 to get a touchdown. Taking a look at Kadarius Tony to get a touchdown. 3.1. They work him into different ways as well. In the running game, those little pop passes behind the line of scrimmage where the quarterback just barely touches the ball. One of those plays. Can Kadarius Tony get in to the end zone as well? Uh, and Travis Kelsey is at 1.61 for an anytime touchdown. Maybe a bit too low for my liking, but something you can keep an eye on you're looking for touchdown scorers for uh, the same game parlay that we were just talking about. Uh, that's People's Picks, brought to you by PlayNow Sports. When you choose to bet on sports at PlayNow.com, you're playing on the only site whose profits go back to BC. Know your limit. Play within it. I'm out of here. Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah, on the way. You're on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.